Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell talking football. We're here to talk about the best wins, the worst losses, the biggest surprises of a wacky week seven before we dive into looking at some games against the spread in week eight. And in our final segment, as always, we'll be offering up our biggest mistake of last week before talking about our locks and our upset picks of the week and offering some dining and drinking suggestions. With that said, how are you doing this week, John? I'm doing great. It was a wild week in college football last week. We finally had a the paradigm shift that I think we were all kind of expecting for weeks and hadn't happened. So really excited to dive in and get started on this week. Yeah, you and me both. It really was a crazy, crazy week. In all of that, what did you see as the best win of the weekend? You know, I think... A lot of people haven't talked about this enough, and I think the job that Scott Satterfield is doing at Louisville is just so impressive so far this year. They were picked uh, by most prognosticators to finish either at the very bottom of the ACC standings or just maybe above Georgia Tech because everyone knew it was going to be a rough year for the Yellow Jackets as they transitioned from an option team to you know, a more up-tempo offense. So, no one expected Louisville through six weeks to be four and two. I don't even think the most ardent of Cardinal supporters would have thought that. Um, uh, if they say that now, they're all liars because there's no way people expected Louisville to be four and two. And then the fact that they were able to go on the road this week and knock off Wake Forest, an undefeated Wake Forest, a team that, due to you know the ACC maybe not being that good, you know whatever you want to say with that, a lot of people have had projected in the Orange Bowl in recent weeks. So yeah, I mean Satterfield's just done a fantastic job there. They came out in Week One uh, and really performed pretty well against Notre Dame relative to expectations. And then since then they've been playing really good. They've got the loss at Florida State. Uh, they beat a what looks like an actually really good Western Kentucky team on the road. Um, in week three, they got a win over Boston College and a win over Wake now. So uh, it was a shootout, obviously, uh, against the Demon Deacons. It was a pretty wild game. A lot of people, I think, probably missed, but 62-59 to 59 was the final there. Uh, and now, I mean, Satterfield has Louisville looking like a legitimate bowl team uh, at this point in the season, which is not anything I don't think anyone really expected um, Louisville to compete for bowl eligibility, and now they're just two wins away, and their schedule sets up to where they should be able to get that sixth win. And not only is it a great job by Satterfield, it also belies how terrible of a job Bobby Petrino did last year, because um, there's there's obviously some talent on this roster that he wasn't able to get anything out of. So just very impressed overall, not just with this win, but how Louisville's looked all season so far. Yeah, I think it was a really great win for Louisville, and it sets them up well for the the second half of their season. At the same time, how ugly for Wake Forest. I mean, you know, coming in 5-0, and they looked like the one team that might be able to push Clemson in terms of, you know, uh, state, you know, keeping relevance in the ACC. But Wake Forest fell... 10 spots out of the AP top 25 down to number 29 in the land of others receiving votes. Also had the the big issue with Jamie Newman suffering that shoulder injury in the first half. 
he did continue to play through and got, you know, 251 yards and three touchdowns, but also threw a couple of picks. Uh, You know, on the positive side for Wake, though, is Sam Hartman, the backup QB, looked really good. Went 9 of 15, threw a couple of touchdowns, rushed for another in the four drives that he was in the game. And so, whatever the prognosis is with uh, Newman, at least they've got competent backup there so that they're not completely reeling out of that. But yeah, you know, Louisville allowed 668 yards to the Demon Deacons and won this game. So, impressive that they did, but absolutely a shootout. The the wildest, highest scoring game of the week, no doubt. For me, though, as somebody who, you know, loves Big Ten football, loves the Badgers... I was really impressed with their win. We'll go to not scoring so much for my choice. The Badgers posted their fourth shutout in six games. This broke the Wisconsin single-season school record for most shutouts in a season, and they've done it in half a season. It really kind of makes you wonder how many more of these they can get before the end of the year. What impressed me, though, is that they did this on a day when Jonathan Taylor was kind of having an off day. He carried the ball 26 times and uh, only gained 80 yards. Of course, he got into the end zone a couple of times, and he added three catches for 22 yards. But a 102-yard day on 29 touches is not what you ever expect from Jonathan Taylor, especially, you know, and that speaks one to Michigan State's defense still being a a solid defense. But they also couldn't do much with uh, Jack Cohn, who threw 18 completions on 21 attempts, had 180 yards and a touchdown. Didn't have huge statistical numbers, but was really efficient. And Wisconsin's defense, beyond that shutout, allowed only 149 total yards. Uh, Zach Vaughn had a 34-yard interception return for a touchdown, and this was just in all phases of the game domination uh, that really kind of asserted Wisconsin's dominance in the Big Ten West. Even on a day when, you know, Michigan played their way into the polls, or not Michigan, sorry, on a day when Minnesota played their way into the polls with that big win over Nebraska, Wisconsin still looks a cut above anybody else in that division. Absolutely. All roads lead to the the Week 9 matchup in Columbus with Wisconsin traveling to the horseshoe to battle Ohio State and what's probably going to be a preview of the Big Ten championship game with the way both teams look. Uh, obviously, the Badgers' defense is legit. I was really impressed with the way Jack Cohn played who's really efficient, completed 18 of his 21 passes on a day they really needed him to step up and take care of the football and help them move the chains. Like you said, with Jonathan Taylor, obviously the focal point of Michigan State's game plan, as it should have been, was shutting down Taylor. Uh, But Wisconsin showing you can't just do that to them anymore, shut down the running game because they have a quarterback who can make some plays, and then their defense allows for a pretty big wide margin of error right now. Undoubtedly. Switching gears, what was the worst loss you saw this weekend? You know, I've been watching SEC football my entire life. Even before I was a wide-ranging college football fan, I always watched SEC football. So I've seen Vanderbilt 
suck quite a bit over my years of watching football. Uh, other than the James Franklin pop-up years and a couple Bobby Johnson seasons with Jay Cutler, the Commodores have been, you know, the laughing stock of the SEC in terms of football for my entire life of watching the sport. But my goodness, I don't know if they've ever looked as bad as they looked on Saturday, getting just absolutely housed at home by UNLV. And, you know, there's no shame in losing to a Mountain West program. The Mountain West is a deep and very good conference. The running Rebels weren't the team that anyone was talking about in terms of the deep, uh, talented conference of the Mountain West. They're one of the worst teams in that conference. You're talking about a team who entered the game uh, just one and four with their one win coming over FCS Southern Utah in the season opener, but then coming in to Nashville and beating Vanderbilt 34 to 10, just a resounding win over the Commodores. That was never really in doubt um, after halftime, you know, just not something I expected. I could have easily gone for this biggest surprise of the week as well, just by, you know, looking at that score, it was just kind of stunning uh, that that would happen to the Commodores. Derek Mason, you know, had a big pedigree as a defensive guy, hasn't really been able to figure out defense in Nashville, and obviously the offense hasn't been very good either. Starting to look like the clock is ticking on his tenure there. There's not always a ton of expectations, but he's got the unfortunate reality of following James Franklin um, with the Commodores after Franklin was able to eke out a couple nine-win seasons before he bolted to Happy Valley. So obviously, even if the expectations weren't high, you can't lose by 24 points to UNLV at home as an SEC program. Definitely not. Yeah, and it was one of those games where UNLV just overpowered them. You know, over 200 rushing yards against the Commodores and outgained them by 70-some yards of offense. Didn't turn the ball over. Um, You know, no interceptions. They did lose one fumble, but... In in the end, they played a really sound, perfect game. It, it was it was exactly what they needed to do to beat Vanderbilt in Nashville. And now the Mountain West has nine wins against Power Five teams this season. It's really speaks, as you said, to the depth of that league that even a team like UNLV could come into SEC country, albeit Nashville, and you know, make their mark. This wasn't a surprise, fluky win. This was a 24-point victory. This is obviously a stain that, I don't know, does it really speak to the SEC being not nearly as powerful as it has been in recent seasons? That's kind of the way I see this when you also look at the way, you know, Missouri lost to Wyoming, Yeah, and then you have Arkansas losing to San Jose State. You've got just, you know, across the board, these aren't the best teams, but Missouri obviously is a good football team this year. And, you know, right now they're at the top of the SEC East and they lost to Wyoming. So I think, I think, Zach, it's, I think the SEC is top heavy if you look at it. I think your best teams in the SEC, your Alabamas, your LSUs, your Floridas, your Georgias, your Auburns are all really good football teams. I think below them, though, I would lump Missouri into that as well, though, because I think one of the biggest 
um, outcome outliers at the end of the year is going to be Missouri going to Wyoming and losing. I think that's going to make no sense to anybody at the end of the season. No offense to the Cowboys, but just based on the relative strength of the team, of each team. So I, I do think the SEC is a bit top-heavy, but I think you could probably say the same of pretty much every conference this year, um, other than the Pac-12 probably. But then you've got the argument that is there an elite team maybe outside of Oregon in the Pac-12 with the way things have looked? Uh, or is there just a lot of quality teams that are cannibalizing each other in that league? But I think it's fair. It's, it's, it's wild to me to think about the fact that San Jose State and UNLV both have road wins over SEC programs this year. That's definitely uh, wild to think about. Yeah, I'm sure you'd have to go back really far into the annals of college football history to find another season where that happened, if you even could. Staying in SEC country, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about what I had as my worst loss of the week. Uh, You know, Georgia was number three in the country coming into their game at home between the hedges against South Carolina. And South Carolina's not a bad football team by any means, but... Losing at home in double overtime to the Gamecocks was it, it was detrimental to Georgia. It doesn't kill their shot in the SEC, and it doesn't completely eliminate them from the college football playoff by any means, but they've got some climbing to do after falling seven spots to number 10. Um, and I think the thing that really kind of makes this look even worse is Ryan Holinsky wasn't in for a large part of that game. He got injured in the first half. The Gamecocks were playing backup quarterbacks who were converted back to quarterback. It, it it was an ugly situation that, by all rights, a team like Georgia should have made go completely out of control. But, you know, field goal issues on both sides were really kind of what tipped this game to me. Beyond Rodrigo Blankenship missing that, that field goal in second overtime to hand the game to the Gamecocks... South Carolina could have won this in the first overtime if Parker White hadn't missed his kick. Between the two of them, Blankenship and White only went three of seven on field goal attempts. Each of them missed two field goals. And so, you know, this game could have gone very differently, but at the same time, this game could have also not gone to double overtime in the first place. So Georgia got lucky having second life in that in the overtime period and then also forcing South Carolina to try a second field goal attempt in the second overtime opened the door for for the Bulldogs to to take the game but you know when when your opponent is eating the hedges at the end of the game you know you've got you've taken a really bad loss yeah, to be fair to Parker White on that end of regulation kick, that was a 57-yarder. Um, you know, the I won't get into my experience with 57-yard field goals because I'll have to start drinking a little more heavy. Um, but, you know, the percentage on makes there is not very good. But, I mean, it looked like at the end neither team wanted to win that football game. You had South Carolina doing everything they could at the end to, to give it back to Georgia. And then Georgia just being like, you know what, no, you guys are good. You've earned it. Y'all take it back, you know. Stunning to watch Rodrigo Blankenship pulled at 42-yarder in the second overtime period that would have tied the game. But just as stunning, I mean, you have two really good kickers, right? I mean, Parker White and Rodrigo Blankenship aren't just two of the best kickers in the SEC. They're two of the best kickers in the country. And, you know, Parker White had a chance to win the game in the first overtime after a Jake Fromm interception 
and missed a 33-yarder that just was unfathomable. And when he missed that kick, it looked like, well, okay, now Georgia's going to assert their dominance. They're going to win this game. That was South Carolina's opportunity. And just Georgia looked lost all game. And, you know, it hasn't been the first time this year that Georgia struggled. I think we've kind of ignored it. They just haven't looked as crisp, I think, as a lot of people were expecting. I don't know that they have the offense to kind of get over the hump this year, like many thought. The the wide receiver position in particular, I think, is down for Georgia. That was a concern coming into the year after they lost uh, a lot of quality talent from last year. Their best receiver is probably freshman George Pickens, but he's inexperienced. Uh, Demetrius Robinson, Lawrence Cager, those guys are good, but not the kind of matchup nightmares that are going to be able to go out there when you've got to convert a guy you can look at and throw to. And obviously Jake Fromm's struggles were kind of eye-opening. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but I wonder if Kirby Smart thinks after that game and after watching what Justin Fields is doing at Ohio State, wondering if he made a mistake. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. I, I'd be, you know, I think we also have to mention that Brian Harriam wasn't in this game that that obviously sort of limited what the Bulldogs could do out of the backfield. But when you have a guy like DeAndre Swift, you you should have enough against even a Gamecocks team. So, yeah, just a, a terrible loss all around that, uh, you know, just like you were saying with the Vanderbilt loss in its own way helped expose some of that top heaviness of the SEC. Um, you know, shifting gears, uh, there were a lot of surprises. We've already mentioned a lot of surprises this week. Um, some of them fans out there might see as the biggest surprise of the week. But what did you see as the biggest surprise? You know, if you're just scrolling through box scores, uh, obviously South Carolina Georgia is going to pop out to you. But if you follow college football as a whole and you follow the group of five ranks like you and I both do, Bowling Green beating Toledo 20 to 7 on Saturday was just absolutely stunning to me. I didn't see the uh, much of the game. I caught some highlights and stuff afterwards, but just absolutely stunning. Toledo looked like the clear uh, Mac favorite coming into this game. Bowling Green like looked like one of the worst teams in the Mac so far this year. You're talking about a, a Bowling Green squad that lost 62 to 20 to Kent State a few weeks ago in September. I mean, it's not like Kent State's a perennial Mac contender themselves. So just absolutely stunning to me because the way Toledo looked so far this year, it looked like they were going to run away with, with the Mac and then Bowling Green coming out and pulling off that win. Just, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I did a double take. I thought maybe ESPN uh, on their app had somehow got the score backwards, as you'll see in high school football reporting sometimes for any of you have ever done anything like that but Bowling Green going out there and, and rushing for 240 yards and just dominating Toledo up front that was stunning to me undoubtedly I had Toledo in my group of five power rankings last week at Saturday Blitz and this week they fell right the hell out of those rankings <laughs> um, at this point it doesn't look like any MAC team has a chance to contend for that New Year's Six berth, no matter who comes out of the conference this year. Uh, everybody's just shooting themselves in the foot in that league. And we talk about that with Power Five conferences, but it's just as, as true a phenomenon at the Group of Five level. And on one hand, we, we sometimes talk about that meaning depth in a league, 
in this case, it's just hard to find a good MAC team this year. So, uh, and Toledo looked like that team, but they certainly got exposed by the Falcons. To be fair, though, that makes for a really interesting race. You know, it'll be fascinating to watch the MAC race because there's nobody's really out of it at this point in the season. Everyone's still alive, so it'll be really fun to watch that league just pillage themselves and see who actually emerges on the other side and gets the gets the into the conference championship game. Yeah, at this point, I'm throwing my hands up. I have absolutely no idea who really wants to go to Ford Field in December at this point. Nope. And, uh, you know, staying in the group of five, the biggest surprise for me was BYU losing on the road to South Florida. Especially because BYU was up 13-0 in the second quarter. They still had a 16-7 lead at the half, and... Heading into the fourth quarter, they were still up nine points at 23-14. And, you know, the Cougars were forcing UCF to be one-dimensional. Quarterback Jordan McLeod only threw for 72 yards. uh, Had a touchdown, but also had an interception on 7 of 14 passing. And Jordan Cronkite looked great in this game, uh, rushing for them. But... BYU did everything for three quarters that they needed to do to make this a a good win on the road, especially with uh, Zach Wilson out and Jaron Hall getting his first start for BYU. Obviously a significant moment. He was the first black quarterback ever to start a game at Brigham Young, and uh, he'll get to do it again next week as the first black quarterback starting in Provo for the Cougars. Um, and he had a great game in that in that inaugural performance. Uh, the freshman, you know, he only threw for 148 yards, but he went 15 of 23. He had a passing touchdown, and he also rushed 16 times for 83 yards and a touchdown to lead the Cougars on the ground. Um, so can't lay this one on him by any means. He certainly came out and performed in a way that was really impressive and set BYU up to to win the game handily on the road, but the defense just collapsed in the fourth quarter, giving up those two touchdowns to sacrifice the lead. And BYU also had 15 more minutes of possession. They dominated that category with 37 and a half minutes of game time with the football and still lost this game. So um, I obviously was following that game. I wrote about it this weekend. And as I was watching it in real time, I had everything written up for that to just be a a standout performance hall coming out and, and, you know, making his name in his first start. But I had to write really rapidly to change the narrative when that happened. And, South Florida started coming back there at Raymond James. Yeah, that was definitely surprising. You look at the stats in that game, and it really doesn't make any sense that South Florida won. If you're just looking at that, you see 439 total yards for BYU, 315 for South Florida, only 72 passing yards in the game, like you said, for the Bulls. You know, two turnovers for South Florida. I mean, South Florida had two turnovers. BYU only had one, you know? So, I mean, how in the world did South Florida pull that game? What a... What a statistical outlier, to be honest. Bill Connolly of ESPN does 
advanced box scores. I was trying to find one for this game. I don't think he's got there yet, but I'm just fascinated to see what the advanced box score says and what the, based on the stats, what the percentage was, uh, how likely percentage-wise was South Florida to actually come out and win this. I'm guessing probably 10% or lower based on the stats. Yeah, it was ridiculous to see the way, you know, that final scoreline 27-23 South Florida was just mind-blowing in itself. And watching it transpire in real time was even crazier. So before we go to break, we obviously still have to hand out some game balls here. So who did you like on offense this week, John? You know, there were several guys who I I considered. Uh, Jaden Daniels at Arizona State was one. I wanted to shout out Lynn Bowden at Kentucky, their star wide receiver, who converted to quarterback because the Wildcats didn't have anybody else to play and led them to a win over Arkansas. But it was really hard to ignore Joe Burrow's performance against the Florida defense. Everyone's been wondering if Burrow was legit, if this LSU offense was as good as advertised. And they got a hell of a test on Saturday night with Florida coming to Death Valley, and they passed it with flying colors. Uh, The Tigers coming out putting 42 on Florida, which you don't see very often. Burrow going 21 of 24, 293 yards and three touchdowns, uh, adding 43 rushing yards. And just LSU's offense for most of the night doing whatever they wanted. I don't think they ask a lot out of Burrow in that offense. I think a lot of his... Uh, he just takes what the defense gives him, but he's got the skill position players. LSU schemes well enough on offense that he doesn't really have to take a bunch of chances. And obviously that's going to help his completion percentage and everything like that. But he's taking every little bit, any sign of weakness he finds in the defense, he's exploiting. LSU jumped up to number two in the AP poll this week. Pretty hard to argue that. I think there's a, a case that could be made that LSU should be number one right now. Uh, just based on what's happened on the gridiron now with their wins over Florida and Texas, padding their resume, all setting up for game of the century part three, I guess, with Alabama and LSU both um, having pretty easy games this week, heading into a bye week and a likely number one versus number two showdown in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, it's lining up really exciting. Burrow's a great pick. I actually went with another quarterback for my game ball. Uh, Jack Plummer at Purdue went 33 of 41 for 420 yards and three touchdowns as the Boilermakers just rolled over Maryland 40 to 14. And the stat line aside, just the fact that Plummer's been improving week to week since he had to take over for Elijah Sindelar going after he went out with an injury, it, it really just speaks to his rapid maturity at that position and it, it yes it's Maryland we they were kind of a you know paper tiger of sorts at the beginning of the season uh just racking up massive score lines but Plummer put that firmly to rest he kind of nailed the final nail in the coffin of the Terps this year and did it in real style, completing more than 80% of his passes along the way. So I really just wanted to make sure to give a shout-out to him as well. And then uh, shifting to defense, I'll hand out my game ball first there. I really liked Lewis Asus there at NC State playing uh, that weekday game against Syracuse. The linebacker racked up 14 tackles. He had three sacks along the way as uh, the Wolfpack just 
you know, came through big at home in what was really a defensive struggle all around. But given all of the great defensive performances in that game, he still came through and shined. So game ball goes to Asus there. Who do you have on defense? Those are great picks. For me, it's it's hard to overlook um, the South Carolina-Georgia game that we've, you know, obviously hit on a lot. Jake Fromm entered that game without having thrown an interception all season long. He threw three picks um, against South Carolina. Big reason why the Gamecocks came away with that win. All three picks went to Israel Mukuamu, uh, the, the the six foot four defensive back for the Gamecocks. Just lauded for his size and his wingspan and everything. And you saw it on display. Any opportunity he had to make a play on the football, he made. Uh, you don't often see a defensive back get three interceptions in a game. He also obviously took one back for a touchdown, what turned out to be kind of the decisive score when you think about it right before halftime. You've got Georgia coming down the field looking like they're going to get some points and go up either 13-10, 17-10 at halftime, and then Fromm throws that pick. Uh, Mukuamu takes it back 53 yards for a touchdown. The turning point in that game happened right there. I think Georgia lost some confidence in what they were doing offensively. Uh, and then obviously he had the interception overtime that should have sealed the game. Uh, but as crazy as that game was, obviously didn't because Parker White missed the field goal right after that. But just an outstanding performance for him from him. And those three interceptions is what turned the tide in South Carolina's favor. And just a massive win for Will Muschamp and the Gamecocks. Yeah, he definitely deserves a game ball there as well, no doubt. Hats off to Mukuamu for what was a lights-out performance. On that note, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Week 8 against the spread as we start to talk about the second half of the 2019 season. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody. We're shifting gears from Week 7 to look at Week 8 action coming up this weekend. Uh, We have five big games against the spread to take a look at. We're going to start out on the West Coast looking at a top 25 matchup that only became a top 25 matchup thanks to a late night surge by the Washington Huskies who this week host the number 12 Oregon Ducks as three-point underdogs at Husky Stadium. How do you think this is going to line up this week, John? You know, this looked like one of the biggest games of the season. Still might be. It's just I can't trust Washington right now. Every time I seem to trust the Huskies, they come out and they have a performance like they did against Stanford or like they did against Cal. Oregon's been the more consistent team. It looked to me like the Ducks finally figured some stuff out on offense after kind of struggling for a couple of weeks against Stanford and Cal, uh, struggling to move the football, struggling to put points on the board. Not to say Colorado has the best defense in the world, but the Ducks pretty much did whatever they want. Uh, Speaking of which, defensively, Oregon's been so much better than I think a lot of people expected. Andy Avalos is right there in contention from the Broyles Award, either him or Joe Brady, uh, the LSU offensive coordinator probably right there competing for that right now. Uh, the Ducks have, according to SP+, Plus, the number one defense in the country so far this season I saw today. So I think the Ducks' defense is what's going to be the difference in this game. We've seen Washington's offense struggle against the better defenses they've faced so far this year. Couldn't do much against Cal. I think we're going to see a lot of the same. I don't expect um, Jacob Eason to be able to do much. I think Justin Herbert comes out, has a big performance. I think Oregon ends up winning this game 
uh, by two touchdowns. I really like the Ducks here. I do as well, obviously, as a as a Duck graduate. Um, the one thing that I'm a little nervous about is Jacob Breland being injured and out for I, what looks like is the rest of the year. Um, the tight end is really developed into one of Herbert's favorite targets over the course of this season. But he's got a lot of other weapons there with Jalen Red and, uh, you know, everybody else on that field. You've got a great backfield with uh, Travis Dye and C.J. Verdell. And uh, I agree, Oregon's defense is just too good for what really has been a very vanilla offense at Washington Funny enough, though, you know, looking at the actual stats so far this year, Washington is outscoring Oregon uh, by by admittedly 0.4 points per game. So they're like neck and neck in terms of their scoring. But what's made the defense is or but what's made the difference is you said is that defense. Avalos has just been a revelation for that team, and so I'm obviously biased but I'm even more optimistic and I have Oregon winning this one 31-10. I can totally see it the only thing that gives me a little bit pause is that this game's in Seattle and that could play a a big role but I think the Ducks are going to show I think they have something to prove I think they want to show the country that they're demonstrably the best team in the Pac-12 and try to this would be a big statement game for them to get back in uh, even the playoff race potentially depending on what happens above them. Certainly. Well, and I mean, it really helps that Washington did play like they did against Arizona last uh, Saturday night, because getting up into the top 25, even at 25, gives Oregon that extra sort of statement point for the committee moving forward. Um, Because you, you know, you look at where teams finish, but you also look at how they're rated at the time that they play. So, I think I think it's going to be a huge Oregon win. Staying in Pac-12 country for our second game, we have another showdown of top 25 teams, this time in the South, as Arizona State heads to Salt Lake City to take on number 13 Utah. This is a much bigger spread in this game, with Utah favored by 13.5 points. But... As we've seen, there's a lot of craziness that's going on in the Pac-12 South this year. Do you think that Arizona State has a chance not just to cover this game, or cover the spread, but also win this game? I think we both probably owe Herm Edwards an apology, because we spent the the Pac-12 preview podcast, if we're talking about old takes exposed, just completely crapping on the Sun Devils for the better part of what felt like an hour and how Herm Edwards was kind of over his head. And Arizona State sitting here 5-1, and one, one of the most surprising teams to me in the country so far this year. Jaden Daniels has been a revelation at quarterback for the Sun Devils. And, I mean, Arizona State's right there in the thick of the Pac-12 South uh, race, and this could be the game that ultimately decides. It's still early, but this could be the game that decides that race. I do think Utah is the better team here, but I think 14 points is just asking for trouble, I think, or 13 and a half, 14, whatever it is at this point. I think that's too much. Uh, I'm done doubting the Sun Devils. So while I think Utah wins the game, I'm going to hedge my bets and pick Arizona State to cover. Um, I do think it's probably a pretty close game. I think the Sun Devils are a better team than anyone really envisioned. 
them to be this year uh, after losing Manny Wilkins, after losing Nikhil Harry uh, and all the other talent they lost on, on offense and defense last year. I like Utah. I think Utah's the best team in that division. I think they win, but I think it's a bit closer. I think it's more of a defensive game than a lot of people might expect, but I think the Utes come out with like a 24-17 win over Arizona State. That's exactly what I have written down on my sheet here. Um, and I was going to make sure to bring up that as good as both Jaden Daniels as well as Utah's Tyler Huntley have been, um, Arizona State and Utah field two of the top 20 scoring defenses in the country. So 24-17 might even be a little high. But I think regardless of what that final score is, it's going to be no more than a touchdown victory for Utah as they extend their home winning streak to eight games. Um, so we're actually in complete accord on that one. So... So everyone, go ahead and bet the over in that game because we're telling you to bet the under. So if we've been this much of agreement, you should bet the over. Yeah, (laughs) that's always scary. So step cautiously. Moving on to our third game of this segment, we have a big game happening in the AAC West this week as Tulane heads to Memphis for a battle of 5-1 and teams at the Liberty Bowl. Memphis is favored by four and a half points in this game, even though the Green Wave, rather than the Tigers, are the team tied with SMU at the top of the division standings. Do you think that Tulane can go into Memphis and take down the Tigers this week? Man, I love Tulane. I love what Willie Fritz is doing and building uh, with the Green Wave. I think he's just a phenomenal football coach. A smart Power 5 program should throw a lot of money at him this offseason. I'm talking about a team like Arkansas or somebody like that who could be in the coaching market. So should throw a blank check Willie Fritz's way. He's done such a great job with a program that's been so downtrodden in recent years. I love Tulane. I, it's probably crazy to say it because it's at Memphis. You've got Memphis coming off a loss, and if they want to get back in the group of five race, if they want to stay relevant in the American Athletic Conference, they cannot afford to lose this game. But screw it. I'm going Tulane. I love the green wave. I love the way they play football. Uh, their rushing offense is really, really good. They've played really sound defense. You're talking about a 5-1 and one Tulane team, by the way. It's only loss this year came to Auburn, and they only gave up 24 points to the Tigers, a 24-6 game at Auburn. Honestly, a pretty impressive showing for that program. I like Tulane to go into Memphis and pull the upset. Um, I like the final to be 31-27 Green Wave. Nice. Uh, Again, folks, we're pretty close on this one, so... Yeah, I think Tulane's rushing offense is really going to make the difference here because you have two teams that have a couple of the best pass defenses in the country so far this year, and Tulane's ability to run the ball here is going to make a difference. I'm really uh, curious as to whether Kenneth Gainwell is at full health after he you know, was out of the game some of some of that loss against Temple. I think it's going to be a little bit closer. I had it at 28-27 Tulane, but yeah, we're really close on this one as well. So I definitely see the green wave not just covering, but moving on to 6-1. Scary. This is too many close games for us, Zach. I don't think I like it. 
I was going to say, let's see if we can get some disagreement here for a change, but honestly, with the last two games we have on here, I don't know that we will, folks. You're going to have to wait for our upsets and our locks <laughs> to find some disagreement this week, the way things are lining up. But our fourth game is a matchup in Big Ten country as number 16 Michigan heads right here to my current hometown in State College to uh, play number 7 Penn State at Beavers Stadium. Penn State comes in as a 9-point favorite in this one, and given the way Michigan has played, do you think that's too low? I do not. I think it's right where it should be, if not a little higher. Jim Harbaugh is having a Jim Harbaugh-type season in Michigan, and what I mean by that is Michigan is beating the crap out of teams they should beat the crap out of. They're blowing out Rutgers. They're beating Illinois by two or three scores. But then they're not beating the teams that they're favored to lose to, right? Even the Iowa game, they were slight favorites to beat the Hawkeyes. He has struggled immensely as an underdog. I don't think that changes this week. I think Penn State's going to be fired up to play this game. The Nittany Lions have looked really, really good in recent weeks after kind of a slow start to the season. It's hard not to be impressed with what Sean Clifford's done at quarterback, with what that defense has done um, so far this season as well. With the home crowd behind them, too, you know it's going to be wild. Uh, And you've got to think that James Franklin's got a little bit of revenge on his mind, kind of like Wisconsin did earlier this year, because Michigan blew out Penn State 42-7 to in Ann Arbor last year. I don't know that we'll get that wide of a margin, but I do think Penn State ends up rolling uh, to victory. I've got the Nittany Lions 27-13. Jeez, folks, I I think he might be looking at my sheet over here. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I think uh, Sean Clifford's going to have a huge game. He's been just improving week over week for the Nittany Lions, looking really great as their new quarterback. Um. The Wolverines looked so good against Illinois until they didn't last week. Um, and, you know, they they inspired a lot of confidence and then decided to just inspire a lot of skepticism by allowing the Illini to pull back within three before that final margin became a lot wider than it really was if you were watching that game. You know, Penn State boasts both a top 10 scoring offense and a top 10 scoring defense, which when you can marry those two together leads to a lot of wins. And um, Michigan has been really great at forcing fumbles. They're eighth in the country right now with seven takeaways, but they've been even better at coughing them up. They're fifth worst in the country with nine fumbles given away so far this year. And so I think they're going to have some bad turnover luck again against a great front seven led by Shaka Tony and Micah Parsons there at linebacker. You know, I think in the end, I had it 31-14, but we're looking at similar margins of victory here. So again, folks, take this all with a grain of salt because (laughs) when we agree, it can get scary. I'm feeling an 0-5 week coming in the way we're agreeing so much right now. Yeah, it's it's getting interesting, and uh, I don't think this fifth game is going to have much disagreement either, because we're looking at number 14 Boise State heading to Provo to face BYU. The Cougars are a six-and-a-half-point underdog, and we've seen 
BYU pull off some interesting results so far when they're playing at home at Lavelle Edwards Stadium, but Boise State is just really good. They continue to roll with the top group of five team in the country. Right now, no group of five team is playing better. Um, You know, SMU had to have that three-overtime victory to survive Tulsa, and App State had an interesting performance last week against Louisiana there in Lafayette. Uh, Very defensive struggle. But Boise State just continues to roll and roll and roll. Even when Hank Bachmeyer got injured in the game against Hawaii, Chase Cord was able to come in and just, you know, there was no drop-off at the quarterback position. So I'm going to hand it over to you. What do you think this game's going to look like with, Bo- with Boise State coming in as a six-and-a-half-point favorite? That spread honestly gives me a little bit of pause just because six and a half doesn't feel like nearly enough points. It makes me worried that Vegas knows something we don't. But even if Hank Bachmeyer can't play this game, Chase Cord looked terrific last week against Hawaii. Um, I, I don't see any way. I mean, I know, like you said, some weird stuff's happened with BYU so far this year, particularly when they played at home. You know, they knocked off USC uh, earlier this season. But I can't see this being that capable for a team that's got a lot of youth at some key positions like like Bachmeyer um, at quarterback starting a freshman um, but they're really good on defense too Curtis Weaver is one of the best defensive players in the country and a lot of people haven't really heard a lot about because he plays at Boise but I think the Broncos roll uh, I don't think this is very close I don't think BYU is a very good team I think that um, those wins that they pulled over USC and Tennessee are going to look really weird. I think you're talking about a two and four BYU team right now that's starting to look like they might not even garner bowl eligibility. Uh, I think Boise State wins 34-17. I have it 45-21. I think it'll be even bigger than that. So, um, you know, I think Jaron Hall, the way he played against South Florida, he's going to have a decent game, but... Boise State has the defense to contain him, both when he tries to run the ball as well as when he's passing. And no matter who's playing quarterback for those Broncos, they're going to get their shots down the field. So we're in way too much agreement, everybody. I think we need to take a quick break here and see if we can regroup and get some disagreement when we head into the final segment. So... Enjoy yourselves over this quick break, and we'll be right back to offer up our locks and our upsets of the week, as long as looking at the crap we dealt at in week seven. So stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. Before we dive into our upset picks and our locks of the week, we need to do some reflection on how we did last week. Um, This is a segment that we introduced last week, uh, looking at the garbage calls that we dealt out uh, in our picks against the spread. So, I'm going to be honest, I kind of crushed it last week. I was 6-1 against the spread in the picks that we offered up. Um, I thought LSU and Penn State were going to win by bigger margins, but... Both of them covered the spread at least, so, you know, six out of seven was great, but 
my bonehead call was saying that Notre Dame was going to roll 38-17 over USC to cover that 11.5 point spread. The Irish were up 17-3 at the half and looked well on track to do it, but the Trojans mounted a huge comeback in that second half. And, you know, it was really exciting to see Keaton Slovis back for, for USC. He played really well there in South Bend, going 24 of 35, uh, throwing a pair of second-half touchdowns that made this game really interesting at the end. Uh, had 255 yards and just completely outplayed Ian Book, who was only 17 of 32 passing the ball, threw for only 165 yards. He had a you know a passing touchdown and he also ran for one. And Tony Jones Jr. looked incredible on the ground, running for 176 yards. But USC looked a lot better than I was expecting them to be when they played in the shadow of touchdown Jesus. So I'll be honest, I I probably deserve that loss. Whenever we see the the two teams play for the Golden Shillelagh, weird things happen. And in week seven, we saw plenty of weird things happen. So I would have been perfect if I would have uh, seen that double-digit spread and taken a little bit of pause over it in a rivalry game like that. Yeah, I I, I didn't have a bad week either um, in terms of picks. I had a couple that went awry. Um, I said Texas Tech would win outright over Baylor. They didn't win outright, but they did cover the 9.5-point spread, so I'm not going to call that boneheaded. Uh, my lock last week was Virginia over Miami. That obviously didn't work out. But the one I really wanted to hit on was one we didn't talk about in the podcast. It was one I wrote uh, in my weekly picks column I write for Saturday Blitz. Uh, I picked Arizona to beat Washington outright last week in that column, <laughs> uh, which seemed like a good idea at the time with the way as much as Washington had been struggling and Arizona had kind of been rolling in recent weeks. Washington was only a six-point favorite on the road. Looked like – you know, things were trending in Khalil Tate and Arizona's directions. Then Washington just went out and kicked the crap out of Arizona. Um, and it wasn't really, you know, close for much of the way. So that was my boneheaded pick of the week was going with the Wildcats to not just cover the six-point spread, but to win outright over Washington. Yeah, that's a pretty bold pick. I mean, I I might have gone the exact same way because, as we talked about in the previous segment, Washington has looked very vanilla for a lot of the season. And yes, they pulled through a huge win over the Wildcats to sort of reshuffle the deck in the Pac-12 South and play their way into a top 25 spot. But even then, uh, Arizona looked much worse than Washington looked incredible in my mind in that game. So really shot themselves in the foot a lot. So yeah, with that, we've atoned for what we messed up in week seven. Let's continue on with our look at the picks in week eight, starting with who you think is going to pull off an upset this week against the spread. Uh, yeah, upsets. Um, let's see. There's a few pretty interesting spreads this week, but for me, I I'm I'm staying on the Texas Tech train, which might be stupid, but I've picked three Texas Tech games this year 
against the spread or over unders, and I'm three and zero. Oh. So, uh, not to toot my own horn, but I picked the uh, Oklahoma over. Uh, Oklahoma, Texas Tech over, which cashed easy. I picked Texas Tech to cover last week against Baylor and cashed. I'm going to keep rolling with the Red Raiders until they burn me. Um, and they've burnt me plenty of times in the past. But I think Texas Tech's actually a, a decent football team this year. They've made a lot of strides defensively. Jordan Brooks uh, is leading a really resurgent Red Raiders defense. Uh, I think they found something at quarterback with Jet Duffy. If he can just take care of the football, he's a really dynamic football player. Uh, Sir Roderick Thompson had 153 yards running the ball last week. Uh, and this is another one of those kind of revenge games. Texas Tech's really struggled against Iowa State in recent years. Matt Campbell's had Tech's number. Uh, but Iowa State comes to Lubbock, comes to Jones Stadium as a as a seven-point favorite. I think Texas Tech, in the very least, covers that spread. I, I do actually think they're going to pull out the win uh, 38-35 or something along those lines over the Cyclones. I was definitely looking at that game. I thought it was one that, that looked like a great upset pick. Um, but I'm also just looking down the list of spreads, and uh, one that kind of stands out to me is a team that we said has been a pleasant surprise this year. Louisville is a 24-point underdog at home against Clemson. And while Clemson looked much better last week than they have for pretty much the rest of this season, I'm still a little skeptical about where the Tigers sit in terms of being able to just absolutely go to Louisville and blow out the Cardinals. I'm not going to go so far as to say that Louisville wins this game outright. That would probably be madness. But I think they have enough on that roster to play within three touchdowns of of Clemson. So if you're looking to make some money, I think that's one place to definitely seek. That's interesting. I say that's pretty bold to be honest. Uh, if you're if you're out there and you're listening and you're looking for which game Zach's gonna be talking about for his boneheaded pick, I think we just found it. Yeah, maybe I'm just dealing that out so that I have one next week that looks actually really bad. Um, Switching gears, though, I think in terms of locks, one I really like is Temple going to SMU with that 7.5-point underdog label on them. They're playing a really tense interdivisional battle at Gerald J. Ford, and... uh, I think with seven and a half points, you're really lucky there because I see this by a touchdown or less. Um, And I think that defense that Temple has is really going to make the difference for them. We saw Tulsa push SMU on their home field, and Temple was a much better team than the Golden Hurricane. So the Owls are going to continue to render some chaos in the AAC West and open the door back up for the winner of that Memphis Tulane game that we mentioned in the previous segment. I like, I like that pick a lot. That's a, that's a really good one. I, I would, I'd be in complete agreement. I think Temple is going to go there and, and pull out the upset. Um, I think they're one of the better teams in the AAC, AAC, that weird, Buffalo game outlier that's going to look really strange at the end of the season, notwithstanding Temple's been fantastic all season long. Um, I stuck, I went to the ACC for my lock of the week. North Carolina is only a three and a half point favorite at Virginia Tech. I think Vegas is getting a little bit of hope back for people for the Hokies after they've, 
you know, they beat Miami, pull out to that big lead, let the Hurricanes come back, but beat Miami and then got the win over Rhode Island. But even then, I mean, 34-17 over Rhode Island still doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. I think this Hokies team is still really bad, to be honest. And I think we're going to get a dose of that this week. I'm super confident that North Carolina is not just going to win this game in Blacksburg. They're going to roll. The The Tar Heels have had an extra week off um, after beating Georgia Tech. And obviously they've played Clemson down to the wire a few weeks back. Virginia Tech's defense is the big problem for the Hokies still, which is surprising considering, you know, Bud Foster is still there managing that defense. I think Sam Howell has a big game passing. I think um, North Carolina gets a lot uh, from the running game, Javante Williams and those guys back there. I think North Carolina rolls by a couple of touchdowns and this cash is very easily. I really like that pick. Yeah. I think at this point we have to wonder whether it's an asset or a liability to have Bud Foster still leading that Virginia Tech defense for as much of an icon as he is in Blacksburg and as much of a legend. I I think the Hokies did really well, not just handing over the head coach position to him when a lot of people thought that he was kind of the heir apparent there. So for what that's worth, take, take John's pick and take it to the bank. Before we head out, let's talk some food and drink though. Cause Tailgater's got a tailgate, and uh, I'm really curious what you're going to be eating this week, John. You know, uh, it's an interesting week. Um, I'll get more into to what I'm going with this week uh, in a minute. But in terms of food-wise, uh, I a thing I've been really craving recently, my fiance mentioned it the other day, was stuffed mushrooms. Uh, so I think this weekend we're going to put together that. I don't know. That's more of a side and kind of a snack thing to eat. I don't know what else we're going to be doing, but definitely some stuffed mushrooms, getting some, uh, buying some whole mushrooms, cutting them up, uh, some cream cheese, some bacon, and some mozzarella cheese or something like that else on the top, baking them in the oven. I'm a huge mushroom fan, um, and that just pairs really well with football because those are good whether they're hot, fresh out of the oven or whether they've been sitting for a couple of hours and they've cooled down. Uh, so make a huge, probably two or three pans of those, to be honest, because I can munch on those throughout the football Saturday. So that's what I'm going with. I was going to say, that doesn't need to be a side dish at all. You can just, you know, sure. buy about 20 dozen mushrooms and just uh, feast throughout the day. I love that. I actually kind of got nostalgic recently. I was in Argentina five years ago studying, and... I've been craving empanadas, and so I think that's what I'm going to be doing. Is make, I'm home alone again this week, everybody. I'm home alone next week as well, so you'll hear this again. But uh, I think I'm going to be making up a big old batch of empanadas for myself and just gorging throughout the day because just like stuffed mushrooms, it's something that you can make a big batch of. I can even you know make them up the night before and just continue to to eat at you know hot or cold they're great um specifically the good old argentine type with some ground beef in there a little bit of uh green olive and uh just some good spices maybe a little bit of hard-boiled egg in there and uh a good well-rounded feast for the entire day uh personally 
I, I, you know, I'm kind of looking at two different things I'm going to wash these down with. Obviously, you got to have some beer on a football Saturday, and being here in Pennsylvania has been really interesting because when I was out on the West Coast, obviously there are a ton of beers out there that are just absolutely incredible. But I also had a friend who used to get old German, like, at cost from a distributor there. He would get tall boys of old German and just have racks of them in his basement for whenever anybody came over on a football day. And obviously is a uh, something that's brewed here in Pennsylvania. I have access to it, and I just kind of got that craving, and so I'll probably get a couple of sixers of tall boys of those. But also with empanadas, for anybody that's been in Argentina, there's kind of a quirk in terms of uh, drinking Fernet Branca and Coca-Cola together, um, which is kind of like an aperitif a uh, little bit. It, it's kind of like helps with digestion. And when you're eating, you know, kind of gorging on a football Saturday, having some kind of medicinal alcohol, quote unquote, to, to help your stomach through the day is always a good thing. And so that's what I'm going to also be pouring is a couple of Fernet and Coke just to uh, wash down the empanadas for the weekend. Man, that sounds amazing. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned nostalgia because that's kind of where I went in terms of my beer choice of the week. Because, uh, you know, for those of you out there that listen every week, you know that I'm a, a big Alabama football fan. Um, and when I was in college at the University of Alabama, um, well, Pause real quick. I'm a big University of Alabama football fan, obviously, for those of you who have been listening. Um, And this is a huge week for Alabama in terms of rivalry games. It's the third Saturday in October. I know a lot of people who are recent football fans don't look at this as a rivalry game because Alabama's kicked the crap out of Tennessee for, you know, more than a decade now in a row. So I know a lot of people don't look at it, but for me it still means a lot because when I was a kid this was just such a big deal, and even in the years before that – was always back and forth, always had a disdain for Tennessee. Uh, and one of the one of the very first football games I went to when I went to the University of Alabama was a Tennessee game. Um, and I just remember going to that game. Uh, Alabama won, as they have so many times over them in recent years, and just getting to uh, watch the game. And then afterwards, because it's college and you're looking for a cheap beer, we pounded like a case of Rolling Rock cans 30-pack Rolling Rock cans after the game, got really blitzed. So I was feeling nostalgic this week. I'm going to go and I'm going to get some canned Rolling Rock, a case of canned Rolling Rock, and I'm going to enjoy that throughout the day leading up to Alabama's 8 p.m. kickoff central time against Tennessee. And then obviously with it being the third Saturday in October, you got to go get a cigar. So I'm going to grab a cigar as well to get ready to light that up as not to get cocky, but as Alabama beats Tennessee um, for what will be the 12th or 13th year in a row. I'm obviously having trouble remembering in terms of counting these at this point. So nostalgia also geared my pick for beer and, um, and cigar for this weekend. So we're both going with Pennsylvania beers this week. I absolutely love it. And uh, I think you're pretty safe to light up that cigar given how these two teams' trajectories have gone this weekend. Of course, we could be talking next week about that being our biggest surprise, but I'd absolutely be surprised if that happened. Yeah, no way. Yeah, yeah, it would be absolutely. It'd be the biggest surprise probably in the last 10 years of college football if Tennessee pulled that off. 
Yeah, I think we'd have to go back to App State, Michigan to see as much surprise as that. So, love those picks. Love what you're drinking. Have a wonderful weekend as it comes up here in Week 8, John. And for all of you out there listening, I hope you have a wonderful Week 8 as well. May your favorite team deal you the best fortunes possible, unless they're playing my team. And uh, we'll talk to you again next Wednesday when we're back for our next edition of the Saturday Blitz podcast. It's been a pleasure, everybody. Take it easy.